This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From our virtual studios in Darmstadt, Germany. And of course, Camarillo, California. It is time once again for the most amazing geeky marketing show of all time, where we collect all the marketing geeks into one place and show them off like a geek fashion show for your enjoyment. For your viewing pleasure. And today we have an incredible episode. Uh, We are bringing on a very, very special guest that is going to get into some pretty advanced uh, online marketing strategies and tactics. And I think for all the true geeks in our audience, uh, you are going to absolutely love this episode. This is uh, uh, one of the more advanced people that we've had on our show regarding marketing. In fact, so advanced that we may just uh, drop out completely and just let him take over the entire show. In fact, he he may (laughs) just interview us on this particular show. That's right. In fact, uh, he is the only person that has ever beaten artificial intelligence at uh, chess. And it's very exciting to have him on the show. But here we go with the Marketing Geeks. Hello, everybody. Uh, We have quite a show for you. But before we do, we're going to pay some bills. So stand by. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. And we're back. So our guest is Richard C. Wilson and Richard C. Wilson. He uh, helps implement discrete full balance sheet family office solutions for 100 million plus net worth families through his Centi Millionaire Advisors, LLC. Yeah, that's that's a great name. He's also the founder of the Family Office Club, the largest membership based family office association uh, that can be found at familyoffices.com with over 1,750 registered family office members and 25 live events per year. I want to find out all about this. Uh, You're a public speaker. Uh, You've had conferences in 17 countries. I don't know if the Netherlands has been uh, on that list, but uh, you should look at it. (laughs) But uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I would like to introduce the great Richard Wilson. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on here, guys. Yeah, so uh, tell us tell us a little bit about uh, a, a little bit of background about what you do, and uh, you know, because this is all very unique. So I, I'd like to find out a little bit more about uh, you know, you've been doing this a while. We we were speaking a little bit before the show started, so why don't you give us a little bit about your bio and kind of where you're coming from? 
Sure. Yeah. So I started 12 years ago and the family office space has really exploded since then. Nobody knew what it was back then. Now only a percentage of even investment professionals know what it is yet. It's a, it's a big industry nowadays. There's well over 10,000 family offices globally and a family office is a ultra wealthy wealth solution. It could be a whole team serving one person worth a couple hundred million dollars, or it could be a wealth organization serving dozens of people worth 20 million to 50 million each per se. And uh, so what we do is we have a platform called the Family Office Club, and it's a community. We have 25 live events per year. And over the last 12 years, we've uh, put out a lot of information in the space and we're the number one thought leader. So besides having familyoffices.com, I've published 13 books and produced 1,800 videos. I've done 114 of our own events, and I've spoken at about 150 of other people's events. And it's just been a lot of uh, funnel building and content building and just documenting the journey, as uh, Gary Vee would say. Yeah. So you're going after, you're going after the, the top net worth individuals um, in the world, I'll say, or in the, at least in the country. So you have a very specific niche that you're chasing. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you've built uh, a marketing funnel around um, you know, going after family offices uh, because that is such like a high net worth uh, net worth niche, and I know there's a lot of competition in that area. So, can you talk a little bit about like what distinguishes you from uh, the other people that are doing the same thing? Yeah, uh, the first thing that distinguishes me is I just take a really long term view. So I do things that would make no sense at all if you're going to be retiring in, in seven to ten years, like some mm-hmm. of my competition might be. Uh, I also just give away a lot more, and I just have kind of a you know, look at all my top three, five competitors combined and give away more than they do in combination. And that recipe has worked well for me. I also keep on finding niches within niches. So we started by saying, hey, I want to be the number one family office thought leader, whatever that means. You know, we, we got to that or the most visited website, the family office podcast, et cetera. And they said, well, it's more valuable to go after these groups called single family offices. They're more secretive, more private. So we started doing an annual event on that, bought singlefamilyoffices.com, published the first book with the word single family office and the title of it. As that got popular, we realized the niche within the niche within the niche is people starting a family office. They don't have any gatekeepers. They don't know anything yet. They need tons of help. So we wrote a book called How to Start a Family Office. You know, not Mm. a rocket scientist type name, but if you search for how to do that online, you know, only one person has taken the time to put together a book on that topic. And so it's competitive, but to put in a decade of focused energy, producing lots of helpful content, uh, you know, the competition gets whittled down pretty quickly and there's nobody else playing that game. Just for the uninitiative, uh, because there's some people that don't understand what a family office is. Can you break down the definition of that? Yeah. So basically, uh, if you're worth $100,000, your complexity is low. And if you make a mistake, maybe it costs you $1,000. If you're worth $100 million, highly complex uh, arrangements all around you. Everybody wants access to your time, lots of opportunities to chase. Uh, And if you make a mistake, it might cost you $400,000 or $1 million. So the mistakes get more expensive and they're more likely to happen because you've got so much going on and you have a lot of opportunities to seize. So the wealthier you get, the more you need a team around you, a holistic solution. There's no way that somebody worth $400 $400 million is supposed to remember all the advice from their CPA. And then three months later, tell that to their wealth manager <laughs> and then tell that to their insurance agent. Like it'd just be insane to try to do that. So the wealthier you are, the more holistic and 360 you need the balance sheet to be managed for yourself. 
Yeah. Now, I just want to say I love that you tackled the niche of teaching others how to start family offices because that's like that's that's tackling this from a totally different area than most people would think, and yet it still positions you as like a thought leader and as a major influencer in the industry because most people they're going to look at like oh this is the guy that teaches people how to start family offices and it's going to it's going to establish your brand and your credibility on a super high level. So I love that strategy. I also it looks like you're pretty. I mean, I, I haven't done a ton of research on you, uh, but it looks like you're probably pretty well SEO and you own URLs like familyoffices.com. Um, you said you also, what was the other one you just bought? Capital raising, we have a capital raising.com, private equity.com. So did you have to buy, um, did you have to buy those from other users? A lot of those, or did you, were you able to get those? Yeah. I bought them all premium. Yeah. I I had a feeling what, what kind of a price tag were on some of those? I got lucky on familyoffices.com. I got it for 10 K and I wouldn't sell it for 200 now. Uh, and I got private equity.com for 130 K capital raising.com was 10 K. Um, so I picked up a few at the five and 10 K 15 K range and just, those are, I mean, those are powerful URLs though, and they're going to work well for SEO too. So, um, so, you know, another thing I, I just wanted to ask you, so, um, so with the family office niche industry, so, you know, a, a lot of clients, I'm sure that when they're worth that much money, there's an issue of trust, right? So what have you done that helps to bridge that gap between like someone that's trying to take advantage of them and someone that they can trust? How, how do you establish that level of trust with those, with these kind of clients? Yeah, I de-risk them reaching out to me and reverse the flow of me trying to reach out to an ultra wealthy client. Um, I reverse it and have them reach out to me. So, so when they look for a solution for a headache they have on Amazon, on Google, on YouTube, et cetera, they find me and they find me consistently. So I can be top of mind and most referred, et cetera. And people think you can only get business in this industry through referrals. So they don't even try to do what I'm doing. Uh, but the books for any high end sale, if you're selling a yacht, you know, if you're selling $10 million houses, et cetera, and you want to earn those types of clientele, then you need to think about what's going on in their brains. What's the conversation in their head? What's their headaches, their pain points, and what are they literally searching into search engines so that they can find you over and over again? You know, where do they congregate? What authors do they read? What podcasts do they listen to? And uh, the fourth layer deep that I didn't get to after how to start a family office was my most recent book called Sent a Millionaire, which means 100 million plus net worth, kind of like billionaire means billion plus. Uh, but my latest book is called Sent a Millionaire Migraines. And it's just talking about the six top headaches of $100 million families. And I give them Excedrin for each of those in a $3 book. And I give away that book in PDF on centamillionaires.com. And that type of stuff works because no one else is talking just to them. Like if you own a hundred yeah. foot super yacht and there's a report, a white paper uh, on managing your super yacht in Singapore and you live in Singapore and you have a hundred foot super yacht, like you're going to read that white paper because it was written just for you and nothing else on planet earth is written just for you. Yeah. To get really deep in the niches. So right. did you, sure. did, did like, what, what was the, what was the inspiration to kind of build this type of empire? Like what, where did you, where did you get the idea to uh, help people manage their money on, on this level and especially go for such a high level type of client? I'd started businesses my whole life. I'd probably started four or five, you know, before I got out of high school and I had a, a decently successful one in college. And then, you know, I guess I was, 
just smart enough to realize I was getting lucky when I stumbled on the family office space and started studying it and seeing that there was no expert in it and just kind of smacked me that there's, you know, Kramer and Susie Orman and all these experts on the stock market and even on penny stocks. There's like all these people fighting for turf. But then and I looked for help on information on family offices. Nobody was being helpful to me. I was like, how is this possible? These are the wealthiest people on planet sure. Earth. You know, nowadays there's a lot more competition, but this was, you know, 12 years ago. And so that was a big uh, motivation. And then I remember in college reading a book by Jeffrey Gittimer, a sales trainer, and he said that he'll give away his number one secret in all of his books because he knows nobody will follow it. And he said, <laughs> if you give away information to your target audience once a week and you do that and you put it in front of people that could say yes to you and you add value to them, you'll be a local expert in one or two years. You'll be a regional expert in three or four years. and You'll be a global expert in seven years. And I remember looking up and saying, I'm going to be the son of a bitch that does it. Cause he just told me I'm not going to do it. And that's his best secret. And you know, he, he grew his business to big heights. And so, uh, I was able to be on his podcast recently and thanked him for that. And I didn't even know what I was going to apply that to when I read it, but it yeah. really stuck out in my mind. Uh, and so I just ended up applying that to the family office space. It, it's almost counterintuitive, but I mean, I completely agree with that point though. Like the more information you share, even if you give away your best stuff, it, it like people still, for the most part, they don't want to execute that information on their own. Like even in marketing, I mean, I could, I could tell somebody exactly what I'm going to do for them. And still they're probably going to hire me to do it instead of trying to figure it out on their own, or they might, they might make an effort to try to figure it out on their own, but they'll give up after, you know, 10 minutes of, of effort. So yeah, uh, it, it is, sure. it's like a counterintuitive point, but it's, it's so very true. Now I, I have another question for you. Cause uh, I imagine getting into this, like in the beginning, I, I don't know if you um, if you had a ton of resources in the beginning when you're coming after this, or did you have to employ like some level of like guerrilla marketing in the beginning to to break into this, or was oh, it because yeah. that? You know, I want to hear a little bit about like what were you doing back then when you you were probably out budgeted by uh, an enormous amount. So what what were like the guerrilla tactics that you employed yeah, in the early? And also, how did you build authority in in a, in, a, in an area where you had none and you had to, and people you what you were asking people to trust you with their finances. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had, I had no resources. So I was in a studio uh, basement, part of a Victorian house in Harvard Square with uh, 800 bucks in my bank account. My rent was a thousand bucks a month uh, when I started the business in 2007, right when the markets went down and I'm in the investment industry. And um, I just got started by writing every day on the space and blogging on it. And my first start was looking at the 500 keywords people search for most on mm -hmm. family offices and capital raising and hedge funds. And I wrote two blog posts on every single one of those 500 keywords. And I'd put it out on eZine articles and all those old school article syndication sites that no one cares yep. to put stuff out on these days. And I put out YouTube videos. And then because of that, almost on accident, I got on the front page of the Boston Globe, started getting interviewed on radio stations and different newspapers. And then that got me speaking engagements, a book deal with Wiley. And at age 26, I'd never spoken before publicly. And I was on the same stage as the prime minister of Turkey and they flew me to Belgium <laughs> to speak on hedge funds. And so awesome. I was like, I'm sure when I showed up, they're like, who's this kid? Like who invited this Richard guy? And, yeah. uh, but I realized then that the only reason they invited me is I was positioned as having the most specialized knowledge <laughs> on the topic they needed. So they just saw, Oh, this, this guy's written 400 posts, you know, cool. probably didn't look at my picture to see how old I was. And they flew me over to Europe and to speak. And then, you know, I spoke a hundred more times in 14 countries you know, use so how, how was so. that? Uh, how was that for you? Like, did you feel like a little bit like, um, like you didn't belong there when you're, when you're with this no, for sure. Turkey at, at age I thought I was going to throw up on myself. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, <laughs> you know, I was like super nervous. I couldn't eat at all. And, uh, 
you know, I, something like clicked though, when that started happening, I said, well, I'm just going to double down. And that's when I bought familyoffices.com, started yeah. writing daily, got the book deal with Wiley and just said, okay, there's something, there's something really here. So when you say write daily, like how you said you wrote like over 400 articles. So did you, uh, did you write like an article a day and for like a year straight? I mean, how, how often, um, when you say that, like how often were you yeah. actually publishing articles? For about six or nine months, it was just once a week, uh, every once in a while, twice. And I started getting a hundred hits, 300 hits a day. A random person would call me and I'd get all excited. Like, well, someone called yeah. me, you know? And then, uh, then I started saying, okay, well, three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And we started getting a thousand hits a day. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to start doing this once a business day. And at that point, my then boss, when I was raising capital said, Hey, you got to delete this website because newspapers and media are calling and you know, this is a distraction from your job. And, uh, so I quit the job <laughs> and before I could get hired somewhere else, yeah. you know, uh, I was making more money doing it full time. And the best story is that I was in a burrito shop when we had launched our first certification program. So we have certifications in capital raising and family offices, et cetera. And I pushed send on the email blast. It was just email opt-ins for my blog at the time. And I remember refreshing and seeing 7,000, 15,000, and we brought in $35,000 and I was sitting there, you know, in this greasy burrito shop. And I realized <laughs> if I could bring in 35K in a day that yeah. I, I had something, you know, that could grow. Okay. I got a question for you. Do you still eat burritos in that greasy burrito shop? But now that you have the money, you just eat more. When I go back to Boston, I do make a point of going there just about every time. It's where I met my wife. You know, I lived there for three or oh, four wow. years. I like Boston. And uh, so, yeah, it's funny to look back at that for sure. Interesting. So, uh, so uh, what would you, like, how, how would you recommend somebody who is just starting out and wanted to build kind of their own little uh, empire, if you will? Like, like say you had two guys who had kind of a, um, an, an up and coming podcast show and they were doing really well. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And we get reached out to on LinkedIn and we all do dance, we'd dance and celebrate. And <laughs> so, so, so starting from scratch, like what would be kind of the, the process that you would, you would walk someone through in, in developing their own niche and becoming profitable like you have? Well, the most important would be to get the most dramatic podcast music possible. Uh, no, for the start of your podcast, like you have. I <laughs> 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 would. Uh, I think. I didn't have awesome things. guests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think I think the two most important things would be to have the mindset of not going to a lake and trying to spear a fish, but looking at the lake, what the other hunters are doing, where the water is flowing, where there's a congregation of fish, where there's the best quality fish. And then figuring out where the waterfall is, where there might be a grizzly bear where the fish are just jumping into their mouth and figure out how to be the grizzly bear instead of the random hunter, like stabbing into the water and missing everything. Uh, yeah. You want the flow coming towards you. You don't want to be chasing the opportunities. You want opportunities smacking you so often you don't have time to respond to them. And I think that uh, the other part of that is when you're looking at how to define yourself, your expertise, your brand, what you stand for who you want to be attractive to, et cetera. I think you need to choose a sandbox where you only have one or two competitors, at least regionally or locally, or maybe even globally, you only have one to four competitors. If you have zero, you might starve or maybe your market doesn't exist, or you're just so far ahead of the trend that it's going to take you know 15 years to get a real business out of it. But if you have a sandbox that is tight enough where maybe you're in a space of you know, yachts or very high end real estate, et cetera. But if you can carve out a unique part of that space so that for some subgroup, you are the number one most relevant solution because everyone else is messing around with 
like when we did our hedge fund certification, there was um, an alternative investment certification, which includes private equity, venture capital, timber, commodities, not just hedge funds. And it was only most of the certifications were for analysts. We said, well, if someone wants to only work in the hedge fund space, they could get our hedge fund certification. So we bought hedgefundcertification.com and we charged $500 to $1,000 to take the course. And we've had 2,500 people come through that program because if all you want to do is work in hedge funds, we are the most logical solution. Like why study timber and VC and private equity and all this other stuff that's made for analysts if you want to be a marketing guy in hedge funds? doesn't make any sense, right? So you can apply that to any marketplace for attracting investors, consumer product people. You just look at a valuable niche and then what are the top three most valuable sub niches and just own one of them. Uh, Because the person who's making money off the bigger sandbox, they can't now change their whole brand and say, oh no, let's cut off all of those revenue sources and only focus on the top thing. They can't do that anymore. Yeah. We've talked about like the, the metaphor of uh, the blue ocean and red ocean and kind of uh, getting into those blue ocean areas with a limited competition. We've never talked about the one with the grizzly and the, uh, and the fish though, which I like that one better. So, so uh, <laughs> what, what, how, what did you set up your uh, certification? Like, tell me about like the, the, like what people like that whole process, like what kind of content was there? Number one. And number two, uh, the certification itself, like how did you build authority around it? So if people have had that certification, they're like, I'm certified by you and, and made it like something that it was, was powerful. Sure. Sure. Yeah. At the beginning it was, uh, we were an early thought leader on family offices and hedge funds. So we had a good email subscriber list that respected the thought leadership we were putting out, which was just from speaking a lot of events and talking to a lot of family offices and hedge funds and knowing what was going on. So it was really the credibility around the thought leadership expertise it's like someone having a popular podcast and then because of that podcast, they trust that you know what you're talking about for certifying them in, in marketing, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we found that if you gain credibility, the more people that go through it, the more you have your own published book, the more that you have a study guide, videos, audio interviews, you know, a syllabus, quotes from past participants, well-known blue chip firms like Thomson Reuters or Bloomberg or Goldman Sachs going through your program. So learned a whole bunch of lessons like that over time and ended up uh, having three distinct areas of focus on the platforms so that it added credibility as well. So my wife runs uh, translatorcertification.com. Uh, JJ and my team runs businesstraining.com. And then literally today, we're doing a switchover from financetraining.com and it's going to be called investmentcertifications.com going forward because we are more investment focused than we are finance technically. Yeah. You really don't mess around with your URLs. You really, you really go for simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. But I think importantly though, nobody wants to go to, you know, uh, certificationsonline.com and it's not specific to their industry. I found that people yeah. really care about, you know, it's all about specialized knowledge. That's why you get a certificate. So you know, they want to hear from someone who's a marketing geek if they want to learn marketing. Yeah, no, I see in your in your bio that you spent you spent over three million dollars in online advertising, and I want to talk a little bit about that because I want to hear about like what what did you learn you know over spending three million dollars in online advertising? Um, did you did you spend some of that on Facebook? Did you spend some of that on Google? Like, what are the networks you you uh, you reached out on, and um, which ones did you find success on? Which ones did you not find success on? I just like to hear a little bit about your experience there, because, um, obviously there's a lot of our listeners that are into, interested in like Facebook ads and LinkedIn ads and Google AdWords and Google sure. Display Network and all that. So I'd like to hear a little bit. About sure. That. Sure. Sure. We had a hard time, uh, measuring the ROI and getting a great ROI off of Twitter and YouTube. So we've only spent 50,000 just 
So just maybe under a hundred thousand on those two platforms. Although with YouTube, I do think there's potential there to dig back into it where we've had more yeah. success is we've spent 400,000 and change on both Facebook and LinkedIn. And those two areas we're spending just as much now as we are with Google AdWords. But over 12 years, for the first seven years, we were just only doing Google AdWords. Um, but now they're on pace equal with each other. And we'll spend anywhere from 40 to 50,000 to up to 120, 140,000 in a month right now on the advertising. And we have uh, many different campaigns going through there. And so you know, we've learned to watch inside of my own feeds for who, who's doing a good job, who's credible, who stands out. So I don't click on a lot of stuff, but you know, when someone gets my attention, you know, um, I try to replicate that. So like one example is Gary V has, um, a lot of video content he's always putting out. And I realized he's kind of like, you know, when I was growing up, you know, Oprah had her own show and everyone knew who she was and she had this massive exposure to America and what I realized is like Gary V is like defining his exposure scope uh, to a demographic he wants. And then he is, you know, constantly streaming diverse uh, content to that demographic. And it's like he has his own TV channel on TV, but better because he's only spending to go to people that he wants to access. So because of that, I created a retargeting campaign and we've got 60 videos dripping on our past 180 day website visitors through Facebook. And we've gotten 46,000 uh, clicks from that over the past nine months or so. Do you do uh, retargeting through video? Like do you, when somebody watches a video, do you try to retarget like the 50%, 75% um, viewers or what, what are you doing with the retargeting? Uh, we retarget from uh, email opt-ins and we'll upload 86,000 emails, for example, we yeah, recently okay. did. And then, you know, 32 will match, 32,000 will match or something. We retarget from website visitors. But um, that's probably the number one thing I'm looking to implement going forward is showing like a whiteboard explainer video, you know, to 20,000 people and anyone who watched, you know, more than 75%, like you just said, yeah. uh, I want to put an offer in front of them. It seems to be something that a lot of the uh, Facebook experts out there are pushing. And I, I implement all the advertising myself uh, on my team. So I'm not like bleeding edge going to Facebook conferences. I'm just, you know, figuring stuff out, you know, trial and error than just listening to some uh, Frank Kern, you know, Dean Jackson yeah. type. Oh, I, I love Frank Kern. I'm a big fan of his. Now I have one more, one last question from me and then I think you're on sure. another one. Um, but I, I had a client, I do a lot of copywriting um, in my, uh, in my, personal business. And uh, I have, I had a client that was running a family office um, type of business and they were really going after like cryptocurrencies still with the, even these big, uh, big markets. I, I was just curious to hear your, uh, your take on crypto. And it's been, it's been surging this week. I don't know if you've been following it, uh, but crypto's back for at least a, for a couple of days anyway. So I was just curious uh, your take on that, or if you do offer crypto to your family office clients, like uh, that, that one was doing, I'm kind of curious. Yeah, we don't we don't have any uh, crypto offering ourselves. I think it's interesting from a capital raising perspective watching that evolve. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I think some families view it as like, well, it could go to zero, or yeah. you know, uh, putter along at where it's at. But it <laughs> also high could risk. grow <laughs> ten times in value, yeah. right? So like the yeah. upside is is more than the downside. So I think some family offices and uh, ultra wealthy just take a flyer on it and, yeah, you know, yeah. allocate. I would hope they're not putting a, a huge percentage in there, but like a small, yeah, it's worth maybe putting a, yeah, putting some, that some in there. Right. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, and finally, the, the the question that I have is, um, if if you are uh, so so, let's say that you're you know you're you're building your authority, you're niching down. I mean, you're obviously doing all the right things, uh, but uh, what what would be like at this point? Because you know, I I, I know that that the nature of advertising is. Uh, kind of changing. What do you find the trends are right now in digital advertising and what is working best for people? Um, I think that one trend, one thing I've found is just that it's much more powerful if you can use for certain types of businesses like mine, digital assets and digital media to be a conduit to create real world relationships because bigger ticket sales get done in person. Most people don't buy a Rolls Royce just via the internet. You know, most people are not buying the super yacht or hiring their wealth advisor and never meeting them in person. Uh, so if you have a ticket price and you're selling something that costs more than three to $5,000 or seven to $10,000, you know, it's probably going to be done in person or closed in person or at least over the phone or via video. So the point of that is that uh, we got a lot stronger when we had the paperback books out, not just a PDF book, even though it's the same exact content. Uh, we got stronger when we started speaking in person and when we could host our own events, uh, things got better. So really tangible, real yeah. world uh, and face to face meetings as a result of all the digital assets, I think, is the one two combo. And, and I really think that um, it takes in competitive industries, not just expertise in family offices or expertise in capital raising or whatever you know, uh, if you're listening to this, whatever your your industry expertise is, but then also having marketing chops that are above and beyond what other people have. And it's the combination of two things like that that creates the magic. And that's why I'm able to run circles around my older competitors because of those two skill sets being in the same brain is rare. Usually it's like the millennial telling the gray-haired guy who's retiring in 10 years what they should do and they think that won't work or they implement one-tenth of it or they mess up the implementation. So there's really not many people doing what's obvious to those who are under 40 years old because everyone with the reins and who has control and has the budget to spend says, no, 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 that's not how the industry works. You don't know any better. So I think that for a lot of people listening, it's figuring out the magical combination you can bring to your space to uh, obliterate yeah. your dinosaur <clears throat> competitors. Yeah, I mean, I will say I've worked with a lot of high ticket sales companies and uh, all high ticket sales close either. They, they can't close over the phone, but they're either over the phone or in person. Like, they don't close over the Internet. Not if you're talking like 50,000 plus, maybe even even 20,000 20, plus. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, yeah. <laughs> Great. And and uh, anything else you want to add before you go? Because I know you're up against some time here. But um, uh, what what would you say is the best advice you can give anybody who is just starting out in their marketing career right at this moment? I would say that if it sounds like too much work to produce more content than anyone else on planet earth for your market that you're defining that you have a crappy niche and you don't believe in it and you're not high conviction enough in it. Like you should choose a niche that's so valuable to dominate and a sandbox that's so valuable to get on top of and put your flag in the ground that it doesn't matter if it takes three, five or 10 years to dominate that niche that once you get on top of that mountain, it's going to be so valuable that you know, you're going to get paid out in spades and if you take that mindset and you do things that are very long-term minded, people around you will see that and they'll either get out of your way or they're going to be ran over by your momentum. And I think that uh, ironically, you get results faster 
when you do things that are for the very long term, because people see the genuine authenticity that you're in this for the long term, you're adding value, you're genuine, you're authentic, and then just things go better all around. But before you go, can you can you just give a couple examples of some of the long term, like the crazy strategies that people like, because you mentioned in the beginning that these are strategies like no one would even consider if they're going to retire in seven years. I would just like to hear a couple because I am a huge believer in long term, uh, long term thinking, long term planning or not planning necessarily, but long long term marketing um, and, and planting seeds that may you know take three years to develop. But I'd like to sure. share a couple of those crazy ideas before we wrap up here. Yeah, some of it is our certification programs. Uh, some of the certifications aren't as profitable as others to run, but we know if we certify them in family offices or capital raising, they're much more likely to come back and be a charter member in the family office club and come to our capital raising workshops or one day, you know, come back to capitalraising.com when they need to raise capital for their, their startup or something. Um, so planting those seeds via the certification programs. Also just replying back to lots of emails where, uh, you know, I, I already have my team, you know, I've got an 18 person team and they reply to most emails that come in, but I do try to get back to people and be timely and be helpful and put in the extra time to give them genuine advice when I, do have the time to reply uh, just to plant the seeds. Uh, even if they're not a customer and they're in some country, we might not ever expand to uh, just mm -hmm. to grow the word of mouth, et cetera. So that'd be another example. And then the final one is um, writing more than one or two books. You know, most people never write even one and we've published 13 books and we write one or two more books each year because we keep on identifying these sub niches where nobody's written a book or there's not a good updated book on the topic. And you know, I could just not write another book the rest of my life and 13 would be fine. But, you know, there's always <laughs> an unlucky number though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't want to stop at 13, but you know, I don't want to not write it. And then someone else writes and I'm like, Oh, I know I should have, I know I should have been the first one to put out a resource yeah. on that topic. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, Richard, thank you so much for, uh, your time. I know you're really busy. This was an oh, honor yes. to have you on our show. Uh, would you consider doing another half hour with us at some point? Yeah, I'd love to. I'm a total marketing uh, geek. So right. anytime you guys uh, want to have me back on, count me and, in. And have you uh, have you pre-ordered your Avengers Infinity War or Avengers Endgame tickets? <laughs> <laughs> I have not, but my, my brother's a, a huge uh, Marvel DC freak. You know, I watched Aquaman and uh, kind of fell asleep. I think a little uh, CGI. I still haven't myself. even seen. I haven't even seen that one. That one didn't appeal to yeah. me. But but this one does. This one does. <laughs> so, all right, Richard. Well, uh, thank you, and uh, and and definitely keep in touch with us. We uh, we would love to have yeah, you. Yeah, we'd back love to have show. you back. Yeah. Great. We'll do anytime. Take care. All right. And uh, it is. Uh, I think it's that time. Uh, it's that time for. Marketing news. What do you got for me, Andre? Yeah. Uh, well, Facebook has had yet another data breach by the looks of it. About time. Uh, yeah. It's been, <laughs> what, 10 minutes? It's been it like 10 like, minutes. It looks like 540 million records uh, have been breached. This is according to uh, the security firm UpGuard. And they said they did a little bit of research and uh, there was two sets of data uh, from a Mexican media company uh, called uh, Coltera Colectiva and 146 gigabyte data set with information like Facebook user activity, account names, IDs was found that included more than 450 million records and uh, including 22,000 passwords apparently used for the app that it was uh, breached. So once again, 
Facebook has let us down. Thank you. <laughs> you know, you know, have, how they really this, us, have they really let us down at this point? I guess don't, shouldn't this be expected now? You, you know, here, this is this is another reason that it let me down. I started dabbling in Facebook. I just went on there and I posted the other day because I did my taxes for my business last year and the year before. I got fifteen hundred dollars back from my business, right? And I, I made about the same amount of money uh, from my business in the U.S. And uh, you know, it's fifteen hundred dollars, fifteen hundred dollars. So uh, individual number one had uh, uh, passed the tax break for the wealthy, and uh, and I did my taxes this year. And 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 the reports were coming in that people's taxes were not; they weren't getting the returns that they had the previous years. So uh, I, I did my taxes, and I, I owed thirty nine dollars. And so this was the first year I wasn't getting like over a thousand dollar refund. And so I, I, I posted that on uh, Facebook and I said, uh, you know, last year I, and for the past several years, I got $1,500 this year. I have to pay $39. Thanks Republicans. And, uh, uh, one of my trolley people that I know, because uh, unlike a lot of people, I do not uh, block or unfriend trolls. Uh, people have become trolls on Facebook. And so uh, he writes back and he's like, wah, wah. I love it when people, uh, I, I love it when people uh, complain about uh, tax loopholes when they're finally closed, you, you know, or something to that effect. And I said, no, this was theft of my money. This guy <laughs> passed a, a tax break that helped the wealthy and didn't give me a tax break because that money went to the wealthy. And did you have, uh, to, did you have to file in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, I have to file in the U.S. As long as I have my U.S. passport, I have to file oh, okay. in the U.S. every okay. year. Interesting. And and uh, and uh, I said, uh, I said, no, this is what happened. This is what the tax law said. And uh, and I said, and 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 he was like, well, source. And I'm like. What do you mean source? It's in the tax law that just passed. You fucking idiot! So uh, it, it or, or it, it's in the uh, it, like the source is this uh, this check or this uh, this bill. <laughs> yeah, the sort read that read the bill that just passed and and it you know it's like That's I have bill, no the bill of the thirty nine dollar bill. I'm talking about that. Oh, bill. yeah, that, <laughs> That's and, the source. And, but here's here's the thing that drives me crazy is like is like if it's not there are people out there that if it's not sourced by Fox News or or our Russian television or um, uh, Alex Jones, it, it's, it, it doesn't, it, it's not real. Right. And so, uh, and, and they want me to source stuff. And even when I source it, they're going to go, Oh, well, that's just the liberal media. And, and you know, it's like, no, it's, it's reality. It, it's a $39 bill I have to pay when before I got back $1,500. And I started engaging with this guy on Facebook and it, it was pissing me off because not only was I like showing him these things and then he was like owning me, right? Cause I'm a lib. So I would have to like, then I found myself like wanting to get back online and like tell this guy off some more. And I realized I'm getting sucked into this 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 that's, swamp. That's what they do. That's that's true. That's what trolls do. They, that's, that's what, they, what that's trolls do. Yeah. And uh, and look, I have no problem paying taxes. I don't. I, and I think you know, I here in the Netherlands, I pay like forty to forty five percent tax. I have no problem doing that because my kid goes to a school that I would have to pay several thousand dollars in the states for for that type of education. Oh, and and P.S. I don't have to worry about him getting shot and killed 
inside of the school. I know there's a lot of people listening to me right now who are probably like, oh, that guy's a lib. I'm going to own him. But let me tell you something. I, I, uh, in this country, people, uh, they look out for one another. I, I don't have to worry about getting mugged when I walk down the street. Uh, the, uh, the healthcare is amazing. And I pay $350 for a family of five. So, uh, and, and guess what? No one loses their, their health, uh, like their house because they get cancer. That just doesn't happen here. Everybody is taken care of. So yes, the 45% tax is totally worth it because they have a society where people are decent to one another. Uh, and, and that's, that's the way it is. Uh, although, uh, the lady at my work who is now leaving, uh, she did say that she hated the polls. So whatever that means. <laughs> she hated the polls. The polls. The polls were moving in and uh, taking over our jobs. It's like it's like in in the oh, United like States. The, the Polish, like the Polish. Yeah, yeah. It's just funny. Like, like what the polls? I don't know. The polls. Yeah, yeah that's what she I'm said. The polls. We don't deal with like the Polish coming into the U.S. like as a threat. So really, really. <laughs> yeah. What about the Moroccans? Should we build the wall to keep out the Moroccans? Because that's what they're talking about here. It's like every country has their damn thing. And and, 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 and this is the last thing I'm going to say about it, and I'll get off this rant. But this is why I I consider myself liberal, this reason, which is this. Every single human mind is a resource. And if you deny that human resource because you think that they're lesser than you, you have lost me. You have lost the argument. Because, uh, you know, during the turn of the century, there was a lot of eugenics that were happening. People really thought that if somebody had some sort of uh, disease or they they were crippled or or uh, couldn't perform in a way that was quote normal, they would uh, they would euthanize those people or they would uh, uh, make sure that they never had children. We would have no Stephen Hawking's. We wouldn't have uh, you know uh, a Peter Dinklage. We wouldn't have. Uh, you know, a lot of people that that contribute to society because of, you know, what what may seem abnormal to other people. Uh, and, and there are so many people that come into this country and educate themselves. And so what if they go back with that knowledge and help their country? We have enough money in this in, in America to fight every war that's ever been fought, but we don't have enough money to educate every single person in the world. I, th- I, I find that uh, a travesty and I find it to be spiritually bankrupt that this country uh, has those types of morals. So uh, that is the end of my rant. Thank you very much and <laughs> have a nice night. So before we before we completely get off your rant, I, I just, I'm just curious. Do you have to pay like double taxes and you have to pay like U.S. taxes and Netherlands taxes then? Or like how does that work as, a, well, as, a, uh, as an expat or whatever you're considered over there? Well, I, having an LLC, I, I don't. I don't really have to pay that many taxes. Most LLCs don't, uh, which is one of the loopholes in in uh, of of um, American society. But because my company uh, doesn't have enough money to, you know, I'm not making a hundred million dollars a year, and 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 because of that, uh, I I don't have to I don't have the the resources to move my uh, my main office to the Cayman Islands to completely uh, pay zero taxes. Uh, I, I have to pay some taxes. In the Netherlands, I have to pay uh, the 45%, but uh, none of that has to go to America. Any money that I make in America, I have to pay taxes on, but uh, yeah, that's uh, becoming less and less these days since I'm working more and more in the Netherlands. 
Now, when you get, uh, I mean, are you on track to get full citizenship at some point? And then when that happens, will you be like totally free from all that? No, I, I mean, that's, you know, my son has dual citizenship. I can get dual citizenship if I uh, either marry a Dutch national uh, or I, I have to give up my um, uh, my my American passport, then I can get uh, a full Dutch passport. But uh, there was a politician here by the name of Kilt Wilders, who was basically like uh, mm -hmm. this Trump light. He had weird hair and he wanted to ban all the mosques and, you know, burn the Koran and build a wall to keep the, the poles and the, uh, the, the, you know, the, <laughs> the I, I read out. about him. He, he made quite a, he made an impact even over here in the U.S. He made the news. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Hilt Wilders, who uh, he also has weird things with his hair. I don't know what's going on with that. Uh, but he uh, he he helped pass a law that basically said that you are not no longer allowed to have dual citizenship. So if you want Dutch citizenship, you got to get rid of your uh, passport of regular nationality. There are some loopholes like my son, for instance, has dual citizenship. And um, I, for, at this moment, I think that if I marry a Dutch national, uh, I can get dual citizenship. But who knows what the next few years will bring. Right on. In other news, <laughs> Tesla, <laughs> Tesla, are you ready for this? Yeah. They have upgraded their autopilot and uh, users of the autopilot no longer need to confirm every single lane change. I, mean, I don't even have a Tesla and I haven't driven with autopilot, so I don't even know. I didn't even know that this was going on, but apparently up until this point, you could use the autopilot, but you had to confirm lane changes. That is no longer the case. We are one inch closer to hands-free driving and give us, I don't know, what, what do you think, Andros? It's like three years till it becomes like actually like fully allowed or how long do you think till, till there actually are driverless cars, consumer, consumer riders in driverless cars. How, how long till that happens? Ooh, I would say 15 years. You think it'd be that long? Cause I mean, yeah, the technology is yeah. already there for the most part. Um, it's just a matter of, uh, although I did read that there were some hackers that had been able to fool. I think it was, I think it was a Tesla autopilot into like going into the wrong lane by using like reflective stickers or something. But I mean, is that really like a thing that you're going to be that worried about? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I guess yeah. it is because if, if hackers can do that, then they maybe, you know, somebody's going to do that and get cars to crash into each other. But uh, yeah, but we're getting closer. So we were 15 years away. We heard it here from auto surgeon, 15 years, driverless cars. You don't need to have any more at that point. I'll put it to you this way. I, I don't think either one of our kids are going to be uh, worrying about getting a driver's license. Yeah, I think that's well. I mean, actually, yeah. I mean, with with the with the move um, to get off of uh, gas vehicles, coupled with the you know the driverless cars, uh, yeah, I think you're you're probably on the right track there. Um, in other news, uh, Elizabeth Warren, or as I like to call her, Pocahontas. <laughs> introduced a bill that could hold tech execs responsible for data breaches. Now, this ties into the uh, last story I just had. So uh, the question is, should uh, tech executives be held responsible if there's a massive data breach and your data is uh, spilled onto the dark web? Um, I, think there's, I think there is some level of circumstances involved in this. 
Maybe. Uh, yeah, they I, I say yes. should be held responsible. Actually, I think they should be held responsible. Yes. Let me put to this. Wait. Yeah. If I if I took if I if I took your information, your private information, me, and uh, I I put it online, and I put you at risk at, uh, at getting you know robbed or or you know getting your identity stolen, you would have a, a lawsuit against me. You could you could sue me. Right. Because I put you in danger. So uh, if in according to the laws of the United States, a corporation is a person, which it is and it has uh, free speech rights, then it should be held to the same rules as a person would. I actually I I submit that if a organization, a company uh, knowingly harms individuals or people or community, uh, the uh, the business should be put to death. I think that there should they should break up the business. Yeah, I really believe that. You know, it's funny. Um, Zuckerberg a few days ago went on the record saying that you know, like maybe Facebook should be regulated by the government, and I want to provide my input on how that should be done. So uh, of today, so today, a uh, it's an article here. Top House Democrat uh, Mark. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's not that's Mark Zuckerberg. Top House Democrat uh, Rep. David Ceciline, um out of Rhode Island. Uh, he said, from my perspective, I think it's a little rich to have Mark Zuckerberg try to give us advice about how Facebook ought to be regulated. Uh, the reality is Facebook has demonstrated unequivocally that it is not capable of regulating itself. It has been a bad actor in some very fundamental ways. Yeah, I think that's pretty yeah. accurate. <laughs> I, I, I would I would say I would say so. And so I, I with that. Uh, I think that what is going to happen is the government is definitely going to regulate uh, social media platforms like Facebook. And I think he's trying to get ahead of it. Uh, yeah, to, you know, he knows it. You know, he knows it's coming. Yeah. So but I, I, I love it. I love the uh, I love this whole idea of him saying, uh, yeah, I think I think we <laughs> will. Uh, I think the government should. And I think we should tell you how to do it. It's almost like let's say that there was an investigation <laughs> of a criminal who had a political uh, political position in office. Hypothetically. And, and hypothetically. And uh, that uh, high ranking politician hired somebody to oversee uh, how the investigation was going to be uh, put out to the general public. And then uh, the person that he hired then wrote a summary that cleared him of all uh, charges whatsoever. And then uh, with the guy that hired him who wrote the thing that he wanted him to write, then used that information to say he was completely innocent. It, it's kind of like that. That's a very far-fetched scenario. Yeah, that would never happen. Who would believe that? <laughs> I, I'll tell you this: if it were, if it were, uh, if it were a uh, a novel, no one would buy it. It would be a complete failure because no one would believe it. And that's an actual quote. My yeah, suspend. You got to willingly suspend that disbelief at a very, very high level. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, all right. Uh, Geek news, and then we're wrapping up. Couple okay, geek stories. Go right ahead. here, I got one. Uh, Captain Marvel. About to cross yeah. a billion dollar mark. It's the wow, latest, that was quick. Uh, that was quick. Yeah, that was quick. That was quick. Now I gotta, I gotta tell you, um, most commercial movies, I am not like I, I don't like big like the Fast and the Furious films. You can. Oh my god, them. I hate them. Oh man, they could, they could, they could launch those to Mars uh, next to all of the DC movies, and I would be fine with that. But I gotta say, Marvel has kept me very, very entertained. 
And uh, yes, they've done a very good job. Yes. Uh, and, you know, Disney has had a role in that, but uh, they haven't done so well with Star Wars. But Marvel has done a great job. Good for you, guys. Keep up the good work. Speaking of Disney and Marvel, uh, a couple stories here. Avengers Endgame is tracking for a 200 to $250 million opening with the potential that it could even crack $260 million. It also shattered the um, 24-hour pre-sale orders. I think it was within three hours they broke the record for 24 hours of pre-sale, uh, pre-sale orders. Damn. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's tracking quite well. Um, and, and also on the front of Disney, uh, they have announced today that they will continue. Now they've, they've uh, just to reiterate to our listeners that don't know this, they have purchased 20th Century Fox. They now own all the movie rights to everything 20th Century to Fox. To everything in the world, to every movie that's ever been made. Yeah, uh, including uh, Alien and Planet of the Apes, as well as Avatar. Uh, but they've announced today that they will be continuing the Alien franchise and the Planet of the Ap- and the Planet of the Apes franchise uh, through Disney. So that that is uh, that's happening. That's happening. Okay, you, do you want to hear my prediction? This is my prediction. Yes. Are you ready for it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. The teaser, the teaser at the end of uh, of Endgame uh-huh. is going to tease uh, X Men. Yeah. It, it, yeah, I think I agree with you. It may not have any of the cast members, but it'll tease like mutants or something like that. I, I do think. Yeah, you, like just, like it'll yeah. just see it, like we'll have something, and then it's going to be like a, a close up of you know Xavier's school for the gifted or something along those lines. I'm kind of on the on this. I've I've already some theories on this, and I I'm kind of on the belief system that they they are going to end this movie like in an alternate dim, alternate dimension, which uh, which would explain why mutants exist all of a sudden. And would free them to use new characters, and, uh, and and maybe some of the characters end up in one dimension, some in another. I don't know, but it's something like that. There's going to be some sort of rift in reality that's going to uh, open the door for the X Men and all these other characters Dude, I, going. I, I, on that on that level, I, I I had a total Mandela effect. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Mandela effect is a uh, is a known effect where uh, you, for instance, know someone has died. In this case, it's named after Mel- Nelson Mandela because there are many many people that remember the day that Nelson Mandela died in prison. And uh, but that didn't happen. And in, in this reality, he went on to become uh, the president of South Africa. But uh, but uh, and, and one of the classic examples is the Berenstein Bears. And some uh, some people remember it as the uh, uh, Berenstein Bears. And Berenst- uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's actually the Berenstain Bears. Is the, the Berenstain really Bears? Is. This is the Baron. Everybody yeah. remembers the Berenstain Bears because that's what it was. Yeah, I mean, up until I, the shift in reality. Yeah, yeah, and and but I I I I had a very very absolute real Mandela effect thing happen to me, like absolutely hundred uh, percent. And that was I was reading the news the other day, and uh, Barbara Streisand posted a photo of her with Chris Christopherson, and. And uh, it was the the Stars Born reunion, and I looked at that photo and I was like, "No, Chris Christopherson died several years ago, and I remember him dying because I spoke with a friend of mine who was a Chris Christopherson fan, and she was she was sad that the quote silver tongue devil had passed away, and <laughs> and he he died, 
he he was and I was like, yes, he was part of the Highwaymen. He did an album with Johnny Cash and um, Waylon Jennings and uh, Willie Nelson. He he died. I know he died. And 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 apparently in this timeline, he has not. So wow. um, the, the one that trips me out the most is that the Monopoly guy never had a monocle. I mean, he never had a monocle. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Really? Yeah, he never had a monocle ever. That's uh, not in this that. This, yeah, yeah, not in this reality. I guess it was Mr. Peanut all along, and we uh, and I just confused the two. I, just I can see where that happens. You never see them at the same parties together. That's true. Yeah, see, they, you it, know, yeah, it, it's so true. I think I think it's a conspiracy, man. It's a conspiracy, man. Speaking of conspiracies, uh, did you hear about this? Is this is kind of uh, segue weird geek news? But uh, Alex Jones had his deposition, uh, and he uh, did you hear about this? This was hysterical. Did 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 you did, did this 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 ring a bell? Uh, I, I oh I did I did hear about this. This is hilarious. Yeah. Yes, I did hear about this. this. Is, oh, yeah. I, I know. So yeah. so okay. So Alex Jones uh, had his dis- deposition where he had to talk about uh, to the, the lawyers about why <laughs> he Hook. said what he said about Sandy Hook, and his answer for that was that he had an element of psychosis. He was suffering from psychosis when he said that. And when press, they asked him, well, where did you get your information? And he finally confessed that he got it from 4chan. That's where he got all of his big like reptile information was from fucking 4chan. And for those of you who don't know what 4chan is, it's basically where trolls go to... Parash Shia LaBeouf. Circle jerk each other? I don't, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just basically like a troll haven. Uh, uh, so, so he, it's basically he goes where like, like smart, like, there's actually pretty well-educated trolls there, but they, they go there to go, you know. Trolling. Troll Shia LaBeouf, mainly. Yeah. And then some other yeah. people too. So, so, uh, so it's so it's basically if it were a fairy tale land, uh, 4chan would be under the bridge where the troll lives. That would be the, 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 the place. So, uh, anyway, I just found it funny that, that, uh, when, when really pushed the only two answers that, uh, that Alex Jones had was that he was suffering from psychosis when he said it and he gets this information from 4chan. No, I, I so, read the, I read the, uh, the headline that was like, Alex Jones says he's suffering from a rare form of psychosis. And I'm like, what? This is, this is interesting. And then all of a sudden I'm like, it was tied to the lawsuit. I'm like, oh, of course he said that. <laughs> <laughs> I was crazy when I said that. I don't know what I'm doing. But buy, buy my, buy my supplements. Um, <laughs> And with that, we end our conspiracy news theory of the week. Uh, not much of a conspiracy. That's kind of what happened. It's not. Just kind of, <laughs> just kind of funny. We, we, we basically took the first half of an amazing show and just blew it to smithereens. I, like, really just... We, we had like a work of art and we just put it through the fucking paper shredder. I apologize to all of our seven listeners, man. It's like this escalated quickly or, or de-escalated. I don't oh even God, know what I'm happened. I'm laughing so hard. It's because so you know it's true. You know it's, it's true. true. We we completely – we just – I think we should just like – we should like we don't this even be a separate episode now. <laughs> yeah. Not only is it a separate episode, I don't think I don't think anyone should hear this. In fact, if if, if this did get out somewhere along the lines and you're listening to this, I, I, I'm really sorry. I'm just really, yeah. really sorry. Please but, don't leave us a bad review. 
But Mr. Peanut <laughs> is not the Monopoly man. Hey, Chris Christopherson is still alive. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, another fine episode of The Marketing Geeks. This was this was probably my favorite episode ever, I gotta tell you. This, this, this was good. This was fantastic. I mean, we kicked off this episode with an incredible interview, and it was so awesome in the beginning. It was so good. It you know, so well. we got we got to do this from now on, where we just we just have like a clickbait sort of like awesome episode in the beginning, and then we just take we just at the end of it we're just like throwing rocks at each other, you know, <laughs> drinking out of the toilet, like dogs you know, and cats living together, <laughs> peeing in the sink, all of it. You know, I love to, it. I love it. Yeah, but I you do know, too. I learned something today. Tell I learned me. that marketing is all about selling stuff to the rich. That's right. <laughs> the trick is, the trick is, sell stuff to the rich and only the ones that say yes. That's right. That's right, indeed. Always sell to people that say yes, because then you will feel more confident about yourself. Otherwise, and your close rate goes up. Your close rate goes too. way up. And with way, that, ladies and gentlemen, stay classy. Stay classy.